Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Founder Hour podcast. And this podcast is brought to you by Outer. Outer makes the world's most beautiful, comfortable, innovative, and high-quality outdoor furniture, all from sustainable materials, and is the only outdoor furniture with a patented built-in cover to make protecting it effortless. From teak chairs to fire pit tables, everything Outer makes has the look and feel of what you'd expect at a five-star resort for less than you'd pay at a big box store for something that won't last. Pat, and you know how much I love five-star resorts. Oh yeah, I do. And as you know, Pat and I spend a lot of time outdoors, and we love hanging out on our outer couches we're certain you'll love it too for a limited time get 10 percent off and free shipping at liveouter.com this is outer's best offer anywhere anywhere only available to the founder hour listeners get 10 percent off and free shipping at live o-u-t-e-r let me say that again for all you alphabet geeks live O-U-T-E-R dot com slash the founder hour. That's liveouter.com slash the founder hour. Terms and conditions apply. Let's get into the episode. Our guest today is Ellen Latham. Ellen is a highly trained physiologist with a lifelong passion for health and fitness. Her desire to be on the cutting edge of fitness inspired her to design the ultimate workout, which became the foundation for Orange Theory Fitness, which she founded with her partners in 2010. Since then, Orange Theory, known for its coach-led group classes featuring heart rate monitors, has surpassed $1 billion in sales with over 1,500 studios and counting worldwide. It was named the fastest-growing woman-owned business in 2017 and one of the fastest-growing franchise companies in history. Here we go. Ellen, we like to kind of, you know, warm things up. And I know that's a you know exercise terminology, an easy one. So I'm just going to hand that off um, to to the audience about who you are and your earlier days. So give us a quick background on uh, where Ellen Latham was born. I was born in Niagara Falls, New York, and I lived there till about 22. Uh, from a very large Italian family, my father was the youngest of eight brothers and sisters from an Italian immigrant family. And uh, we probably had about 140 relatives just in the city of Niagara Falls. Always had a cousin in class or a teacher. There was someone that was a relative. So it was a big, wonderful Italian family. And my father was the youngest. And my father was a phys ed teacher and football coach at the local high school. So, uh, He was kind of, it's kind of out of one of those lifetime TV movies. He was kind of the coach and the game on the weekend was the big game that the whole city went to. And uh, so he was kind of, you know, the important guy in town. I've heard that the New York side of Niagara Falls isn't the, isn't the pretty side of Niagara Falls. Is that true? Well, now it's the natural side of Niagara Falls. (laughs) Okay. It's the organic side. But listen, when I grew up, you know, in the 60s, 70s, phenomenal city. Uh, Was a great place to grow up. A lot of culture, diverse. It just was wonderful in that way. Um, Unfortunately, as of frequently or as of, you know, recently, um, it struggles because it was a factory city, DuPont, Carborundum, Nabisca, they all closed down. So people left 
That's why I left in my 20s. Typically, generations before me, you lived there, married someone, had kids, and died there. And that's kind of how it was in that city, generations. But what happened in mine was there weren't jobs and people had to leave. So it's a very different city, you know, right now. Although it was probably the best thing that could have happened to me was to kind of go and flap my wings uh, coming to Florida. Yeah. Um, what, I guess, what kind of kid would you say you were when you were growing up? You know, what, what kind of things were you into? So, you know, when I was growing up, there wasn't the girls athletics like there is today uh, in the school system. Title IX actually happened while I was, you know, going to school. Um, so I did the cheerleading and whatever, you know, level of athletics you can do with that. Um, I played intramural softball and then I got on a traveling softball team when I was probably 12, 13. And I really took to that. Um, what kind of kid was I? Uh, I, I probably was a very, very disciplined, obedient child. <laughs> there were four of us and out of the four of us, I definitely was the one who got in trouble the least. I just kind of am one who kind of, you know, stayed within the lines. My father was this bigger than life man. I don't know if it's, you know, I have brothers. So as a female, it's a little different, you know, here's this icon man as my father. And, you know, my first love, of course, is a daughter to her father. And it was just, I wanted to, you know, do and be the best for him. And a matter of fact, when it came to going to college, I told him, I want to do what you're doing. So I went and got a phys ed degree, which is exactly what he had, a phys ed degree. And I was going to become a phys ed teacher. And that was going to be great and fabulous. And uh, I ended up staying on to get my master's in exercise physiology. Um, didn't really end up teaching school. So, you know, I assume this was what, like 30, 40 years ago, Ellen? Like what, what, what's the kind of time frame? Um, of when you went to college. Okay. Well, we're probably talking, I graduated in 1975. So talk about a five, four or six years of college after that. Ellen, if you could set the stage for us a little bit about what the physical uh, education, physical exercise space was like in the mid seventies, early eighties. Uh, we obviously know what it looks like today. We know uh, about all the different concepts around the globe. Uh, and we, we'll get to that later in the episode, but just kind of set the scene for us. Yeah. Well, you know, for women, it was all about aerobics. It was a Jane Fonda leg warmer stay, uh, period of time. And um, Judy Shepard was doing the jazzercise. So it was dance aerobics. And we were all going to conferences and learning all kinds of choreographed routines. There'd sometimes be 500 women, we all of us instructors at conferences learning, you know, uh, dance aerobic routines to bring back to our facilities. So that was what fitness was about. Now, you know, I worked in a YMCA and there was weight training and the guys were doing a lot of weight training. So I started actually lifting weights with the guys because I worked in the Y with them and I was the only woman in the weight room. You know, in the 70s and 80s, you weren't seeing women lifting weights or you didn't see them in the weight room. I did because these guys were my friends and we'd go lift together. And then, of course, I loved the results from lifting. So I, you know, kind of got introduced to that. But basically, fitness was about running. It was about dance aerobics. Guys were lifting weights. 
uh, playing racquetball. Uh, that was what was going on at that time. Mm-hmm. I want to kind of talk a little bit about your father. You mentioned him a couple times. I, I know he played a big role in, in your life throughout the years, and I know we'll get into that too. But I want to kind of talk about a little bit about his background and how he sort of fell into being like a football coach and physical education you know, teacher. What I mean, what was his kind of, you know, lifestyle like? Where where did he come from? Yeah. So uh, my father was the youngest of eight children from an Italian immigrant family. And uh, he was actually drafted by the Toronto Argonauts in 1940 to play professional football. Um, but instead, he accepted a full college scholarship at Canisius College in Buffalo so he could get a college education. He would be the only child of eight children from this Italian immigrant family to get a college education. And he just took advantage of that and thought that was important. And so he went to Canisius and played ball. Then he went to UB and he actually held the punting record uh, in college at 40, averaging 47.5 yards. I'm going to keep his memory alive out here. Uh, He was a punter. And so he became a phys ed teacher and football coach at the local high school in Niagara Falls. And he was just... This guy, you know, I talk about that he lived by this momentum shift up theory. So there's sports psychologists call this theory momentum shift. And you can momentum shift up or you can momentum shift down. So sports psychologists, and my father would talk to me about this and lived by this, would tell their coaches, when your team's not performing like they should be, when your players aren't performing, like they should be, instead of yelling at them and keep talking about what they didn't do well, sure, you mention and go over those things, but then emphasize what they do do well. Emphasize why they're on that team and the successes you have seen with them. He was just really so special in the sense of living by this momentum shift up theory. I often say he didn't parrot my sister and two brothers and myself. He coached us. And this was something that I knew from an early age in regard to this thinking, because it is a way of thinking to focus on what you have instead of what you don't have. And in our society, we tend to do the opposite, don't we? wake up in the morning, what isn't going well, what could I be doing better, instead of sitting there in gratitude of what's going well. He just was that man. So I was very fortunate to be surrounded by that. Many of his players, I mean, when he passed away, I can't even tell you the decades of players that came out and came up to me and gave me stories of how this man helped get a college scholarship and they would never be able to afford to go to college, how he always believed in them, just really special things. So I was very fortunate. Did you know what you wanted to do with your physical education degree or was it just something you were passionate about and you, you figured that you'd figure something out later? I did. I figured that I would uh, teach school. But when I got that degree, that was when there were 5 million teachers and there were no jobs. So it was impossible for me to get work. I was subbing and doing this. And what happened was a job opened up at the YMCA, a full-time fitness director job. I applied for it. And that's how I kind of fell into the fitness industry and kind of stayed there. I ended up working as a fitness director, became the first female director of a YMCA that actually had men residents up on the top floor. 
which was a whole story in itself. And um, that was like just this wonderful kind of experience. I love the challenge of things, but I, no matter how I wanted to grow and maybe direct a facility or, you know, be the manager of a facility, I would always tell the owners or whoever, my supervisors, I've got to be able to constantly coach classes. That is something I don't want to stop doing. I love that. I'm not built to sit in a room at a desk and manage this fitness facility. I'll do that, but I have to be able to teach coach classes as well. Mm-hmm. So what, <clears throat> I guess what comes, how long were you at the YMCA and then what came after that? So I was at the YMCA for maybe about five years and my sister lived in Fort Lauderdale, Florida with her husband and me and my husband at that time, we moved here and we didn't have jobs and we just kind of felt like, let's give this a shot. I'll never forget uh, having a conversation with my sister and basically saying, give me the five top fitness facilities in Fort Lauderdale. What are the five? Everyone's talking about where are they? As soon as I landed here, I went, introduced myself at those places. I started teaching classes for as little as $15 an hour. It didn't matter. Some, some of those places I had to drive 45 minutes to get to didn't matter. I needed to work in the best places. And were these more like kind of individual studios? Um, like at the time, did like was LA Fitness or Twenty Four Hour Fitness or some of these like you know Bally Total Fitness and some of these places, um, you know, around? Uh, were they as like prevalent as they are today? There were some of those, but that is not where I went. They weren't the top five yeah. places. The top five places were these unique studio concepts, even back there, that they were doing aerobics with the heavy hands and jumping up and down and doing all kinds of aerobic type classes and packing these women in. And that's what I did. I taught there for probably about six months. And then I found out there were these things called fitness spas here in Florida. So I went and I applied for a job at what was called Bonaventure Spa. Now these spas were where the movie stars came. So they came from California for a week to maybe dry out a little, whatever, but they came to uh, get fit. Uh, they took classes all day. They did their facials, massages. They ate, they were put on a food program. I mean, it was one of those. T- and I said, whoa, this is the best, very high end. Uh, and top-notch people. And so I got a job there as an exercise physiologist because I had a master's in exercise phys, which worked so well for me, which a lot of fitness people didn't have at that time. So they hired me as that. And that was really where I was on my way of wanting to work high-end work like for people who are really interested in great fitness and were willing to come in and be a part of it and pay for it. And I love that because I gave them all my knowledge and fitness. And I absolutely thought that I had the best fitness job in the world. And did you feel like at this point in your life that this was a career that you were comfortable with that you would pursue for perhaps the rest of your life? Absolutely. There is no doubt in my mind. Uh, I thought that there was, you know, potential for me. I'll never forget when I sat in the interview with the uh, spa director of that very high end spa. And she said, well, where would you like to be in a, you know, couple years in this and that? And I said, I'd like to be in your seat. 
I don't know if they went over real well because she didn't smile, but I ended up leaving there in about three years because I got offered at an even more prestigious spa in North Miami Beach, Florida, uh, the exercise physiologist position, which then turned into the spa director position. So it all worked out. And these were like the pre-Equinox days, right? Where like there were there weren't necessarily all of these brand name nice like club type facilities with your spas and your Pilates and your classes and your workouts. Like this was like what now we're talking eighties, nineties. Yeah. Nineties. Yeah. Yeah. So this was, yeah. yeah. I mean, they certainly weren't in Niagara Falls, New York. So this was, I'll never for calling home to my mother and saying, I don't know, I'm pulling up on this property and there's these giant fountains and I'm very excited to work here. <laughs> Do you have like one like profound memory from that time? Maybe it was like someone that was in your class that you're like, oh my God, I can't believe like this, you know, high profile person or celebrities in here or just like a run in with someone or something that you can remember. Oh yeah. There was like Linda Evans would come. There was when Dynasty was big. Um, a lot of the soap opera stars, uh, I did a boot camp where uh, the soap opera stars would come down and I put them through a week workout. Uh, Matt Damon was in my Pilates class. I did private Pilates with James Kahn. Yeah. Here in Florida, I got exposed to some neat stuff. Yeah. So, um, so, so you're, you're working at these spas and then I know I think around the age of 40, um, things kind of took a turn, um, where, uh, you were fired from your job and, and sort of were a single mother and had to figure it out. So tell us a little bit about that time in your life and, I guess, what kind of was going through your head in terms of what do I do next? Yeah, you know, I had been now at this new spa for a while. And, you know, it was just it, it was just a great job because, I, I, like I say, I was doing these celebrity boot camps. I was writing a fitness column in the Miami Herald. I was doing fitness tips on Channel 7 Fox News here in Miami. I mean, it really, I was kind of, I built this nice, like, persona. And... I was working for a private spa with private owners, and I had brought spinning to Florida. This was before no one had spinning. So I was, I met Johnny G at a convention. He was sitting in the corner. He, you know, created spinning, Johnny G. And I met him with a couple bikes. He's telling me about this program. He put me through a little workout. I came back and I talked my owners into buying 10 of these bikes. Well, we put them in the spa and it just exploded. We were on every magazine, newspaper, TV station for this new workout that existed. And then quite honestly, what ended up happening is I'd been there a little bit and I lived in Fort Lauderdale and I wanted to open up a little spinning concession. My new owners weren't that thrilled with that idea. And so they felt we needed to part ways because they, you know, and I understand to a point, you know, but I, at that time, I was just pushing and moving and, you know, just constantly creating. And um, it worked for the best, obviously, because that would have been limiting to me. But I was devastated when they basically pulled me in and said, you know what, you want to do other things, we're going to part ways. A nine-year-old son, income stopped right there, got up the next morning, and decided I only had a few options. My father was alive then, and basically that momentum shift up theory uh, proved to really work for me at that time. Focus on what you have, not what you don't have. 
Well, I had a Pilates yeah. certification. I did open up that little spinning concession and I started doing Pilates out of a spare room in my home next to my son's bedroom. And I built this at-home Pilates program crazy. From 6 a.m. in the morning sometimes to 9 p.m. at night, I had two women pulling in my driveway, two women pulling out of my driveway in their exercise outfits. I, I often joke and say I have no idea what the neighbors thought, what kind of job or work I had going on in that house. But <laughs> yeah. it was a really a great thing, which led me to borrow a little money and open up an 1,100-square-foot Pilates studio. You know what's interesting? It's you know I think some people have this entrepreneurial nature in them that maybe they don't figure out until later in life or something has to happen where you might be working somewhere and things don't quite work out. And obviously there, you could, you could be like just a bad employee, not show up to work. That's one way of getting fired. But when you're like, you have this vision and you, you try to push and you try to like innovate and you try to take things to a different direction. And, and that's not quite like aligned with whoever you're working for their vision. Then that's like, you know, that's not necessarily a reason to be down on yourself, right. About like, having to part ways because you're kind of restricted, right? As an, as an employee at someone's company, did you ever up until that point feel like eventually you would want to just have your own business, have your own thing? And was that something you were working towards You know, or did it just happen yeah. after? Yeah. What's funny is no, the answer is really no. I, I thought this was great. If I could have like explored some other things and that would let me feel like I'm still flapping my wings and I'm still in the creative mode. You know, that is, I'm really good in, as a visionary and in, in fitness. So if I could have done that, I, I would have kept that job forever. But, you know, like you say, that's not going to work for maybe some owners. Maybe it would for some, but it didn't for them. And it wasn't until I went out there and I started very slow. Mind you, I started in a spare room in my house. So that's very slow. And started to have belief in myself of, wait a minute, I know a lot. And I kind of, people kind of like what I, you know, offer them. And I started getting my footing slowly. This wasn't like, boom, slowly. And then opened up that 1,100 square foot studio. It went really well. Now I'm more confident. Now I'm believing in myself even more. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm having that attitude of, I think I can do this. Yeah. Was there anywhere or anybody you learned from like this kind of concept of, of building a scalable business um, at the time? Because, you know, when it comes to being like, let's say a personal trainer or like a, a coach or something like that, it's really hard to scale yourself, right? Like you have your own finite amount of time in a day. You could only see, if you're doing one-on-one -on -one coaching, one-on-one -on -one training, you could only see so many people in one day. And at some point, the math, uh, I mean, based on the input versus output, just like doesn't necessarily make sense unless you start doing like group trainings and group, you know, and and obviously I'm not surprised that it kind of ended up there, but was that something that was like brewing in your head at the time? And, and, you know, did someone kind of, you know, share that with you or tell you, or did you learn it from somewhere? Yeah, You know, it's, it's interesting because I had a couple men mentors because there weren't a lot of women that were in my industry that were up at that high level of owning something or running something. And so I had some great male mentors that, you know, supported and believed in me and encouraged me and that type of thing. But you're absolutely right. You have to, what I found, you know, I have to start putting a team together. And then that's scary in itself because in fitness, you know, 
I had, and this happened to me with that Pilates studio, I had brought on a couple people. Well, they ended up going, opening up a studio and taking half my members. So now yeah. it was, I had some hard knocks. I had some, so now I'm with half the members, have to rebuild. I did rebuild, but it was just like, wow this is hard. How, how do you do this? Cause it can't be all about me. I have to get other people working with me and on board. And how do you do that? And they, you know, go off and take your business. It, it, it's, it was a, a big learning experience for me. Um, and I probably, you know, of course the biggest thing was when I partnered with my guys with orange theory of really understanding the importance of in partnership of each of you having the strength in your own lane. So for example, so as the story goes, just to continue with it, with the Pilates studio, I ended up, my members were happy with metabolic work. They were spinning, they were jogging around the park and they were, cause Pilates, there's no fat burning work. So they were like, can't you come up with something? So that's when I went and moved over to a bigger space and I created the room that was the foundation of Orange Theory Fitness. Um, and when that started taking off, I met with Jerome and Dave, their wife, uh, Jerome's wife was a member at my facility and that's and right out of the gate. I think the three of us didn't even realize this, but now going 13 years later and having this mega successful brand, it really was that the three of us have mega strengths. So I consider myself like the artist, right? I was the creative force on the workout. And then Dave Long is a master CEO manager. He manages the business. And then Jerome is a pure authentic, unbelievable entrepreneur. And his whole focus is how can we put up 10 more? How can we put up 10 more? So when you had each one of us in our lanes with these mega strengths, that I think really helped propel us forward because we, we always got along because we respected each other's mega strengths, superpowers, and others, franchisees as they came in, respected. Wow. She really knows her fitness. Wow. He knows, you know, franchising. So I, I don't know. It's very interesting looking at it all. Ellen. So I, I definitely, and we want, we want to focus on orange theory, but I want to also just take a step back real quick. Uh, because I think that a lot of our listeners, um, are probably going to ask similar questions to what I would ask about that moment in time that you're this 40 year old single mother, uh, and Pat and I are 30 now. And when we were 10, 40 years old, it seemed like a lot older than it does now. Um, but you talk about your mindset, right? Of almost instantly you were able to shift from like, there's no income to, I need to figure it out. And I think that that moment of, um, I don't want to call it desperation, but it was almost a necessity mm -hmm. for you to make money allowed you that urgency, right? Absolutely. To do something. I think a lot of people, whether they're our age at 30, whether they're 20, whether they're 40, whether they're 60, they lack that urgency, even though they want to quote unquote, be entrepreneurs. What would be your advice to those that maybe aren't in a place of urgency that don't need to make money perhaps, or to do or be an entrepreneur? How do they shift their mindset? Yeah, I think you have to be relentless. 
That is the word that I use all the time is you have to, I know at that time it, it was like, I just was going to eliminate distractions. I had my son and I was just going to other distractions couldn't because then my mind could not 1000% go there. And I think because of that, it allowed me to, you know, move forward. Um, I had moments that my father reminded me about my gift, which basically is my purpose in life. You know, your purpose is your contribution in life. So if you sit in your space of like, what am I really supposed to be doing? Who I am? It's what you want your contribution to be. That's the definition of purpose. And he was very purposeful and was like reminding me of that. And I knew it had to be fitness. So I wasn't going to go find a job because, you know, I had to pay the rent and this and that. I was going to find a way in my field of fitness to do this. So that relentless, eliminate distractions, uh, you know, just really think about you and your purpose and what you really want and what you want your contribution to be, and then go out there after it. I think that it's very important to get up in your head certain words, because you see words create actions and actions create an attitude. I talk about this all the time with my coaches. The words you use as you're coaching your classes, the words you use that you're talking to yourself in your head, they're going to create actions. So now my actions were, my words were, okay, Ellen, let's go. You've got this. Go figure out a way. Do Pilates. Okay, you got a spare room in your house. Okay, you're spinning. I was teaching like eight classes a day, a day at that, my little spinning concession. Get those women to come over and do Pilates with you. It was like the words that kept telling me how to do it created action. All of a sudden, I had all these women coming to my house. The action occurred. Words create action, which then creates an attitude. An attitude is like a yawn. It's contagious. So all of a sudden, it was contagious not only in me, but in others, where it was like, wow, she's like powerful. Look at, you know, look at her. You know what I'm saying? That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of, yeah, and so kind of shifting, I guess, like in between that time when you're teaching Pilates, you have the studio and then obviously Orange Theory, there's this thing that you created, which is the ultimate workout. And that I think it seems like served as the foundation for Orange Theory. And that was like the innovative concept at the time that, you know, didn't exist. Like you, you, you didn't just, you know, create another workout. I mean, it was like, it's a very unique thing. And you know, there's this thing about innovation, I think, in entrepreneurship is like unlocking secrets, right? Like, what do you know? What do you come across that maybe other people don't, right? And and that kind of becomes like that novel thing that really propels you forward and like jumpstarts your your business, right? Because you, you create this thing and then you, and then somehow, some way, maybe it leads to a business, right? And so speaking of that time, like when you're perhaps moving from the room to the studio and, you know, hearing like what is not out there from your you know, clients in terms of, you know, they're missing something in the market. They need something that's a little bit, I don't know, better for them in terms of, you know, a metabolic workout or whatever it is. How did you, I know you had a background in it. You had studied it. How did you come up with this new concept that, you know, didn't exist and why didn't exist? Yeah. Well, it, it's interesting because it was, so one, one time, um, a very successful entrepreneur said to me, you know what you did that's different than a lot of entrepreneurs do? They're sitting around a table, a conference table, and trying to figure out the next big thing. You did the opposite. You sat there and just 
created what exactly your members wanted. They wanted a one hour metabolic workout. You knew that what they liked from you, you teaching group fitness and Pilates. So I, ne I needed it to move. I needed it to be something that had a pace to it. I knew that I had to do heart rate based work to get that oxygen debt. You know, when you talk about um, metabolic work, you want to create an oxygen debt in the person, and then your body has to repay that oxygen debt. It's like money in the bank. You, you spent money in the bank, you got to go work harder to go put the money back in the bank. Your body works the same way. So I knew that interval training was definitely the way to take a short period of that hour and be able to hit what I needed to do. All I need is 12 to 20 minutes where that heart rate's over 82%. That's all I need. Then I knew I needed some muscle work in there. Um, I had, in those days in the YMCA, been doing what was called more absolute uh, muscle work. That's that heavy lifting, you know, how much can I bench press, this type of thing. That was not what these women wanted. I was doing Pilates with them. So I had to figure out functional and usable strength. That's what we do at Orange Theory. It's called functional and usable. It's you are you able to get up and down off the ground quickly, this and that. Your muscles are very functioning and fit. So that floor work, and the dumbbells I have in there and the med balls and the TRX straps were creating that kind of work. And then I was very familiar with this thing called power. It's kind of like putting lighter fluid on your workout. So for example, CrossFit uses explosive jumps on, on boxes for power. Well, I knew my knees weren't going to be interested in that. So I found these very dusty machines in the corner of gyms called rowers that not a person was using back in the, that day in 2008. And I said, this, it would be great for non-impact power. So these were the physiological aspects I wanted to put in the workout. Listen, I didn't know if this was going to work. I opened up the day, the, the walls. I mean, the, um, I opened up the door. I bought all the equipment. Right. I borrowed money and I had never taught one class in that room. That's yeah. crazy. See, you didn't, you didn't know it was going to work, but you knew the science behind it. Yes. I'm just curious, you know, since then, obviously we, I mean, high intense, high intensity interval training, you know, EPOC, these are all things that we, we hear about now, but at the time, you know, I, I mean, People were probably just going to gyms, like you said, trying to you know max out as much weight as they could, but there wasn't really much science behind it. And I'm, I'm curious why. Like, was there some sort of discovery at the time? Like, was it like how did why did why wasn't it not a business yeah. at the time? Uh, you know, I my thinking and my brain was I wanted something different. I didn't want you know just to put in a boxing, spinning, whatever type of thing that was out there. And I really did just base it on what. You know, I knew physiologically as a, th uh, a exercise physiologist, things that back in the spa days, I would recommend to those stars. I'd write programs for Linda Evans and go, now go home and you're going to do two minutes on the treadmill at a nice base pace. Then you're going to pick it up for a minute as hard as you can. Then you're going to back off. I mean, I was doing this way back then. It just kind of came together and that I mixed it all up in a bowl and said, I think that, no, I know. I know the science is going to work. Now I just have to hope enough people will come and try it and give it a shot in their body for at least enough time to start to see the results. This episode is brought to you by Axiom Print, based in the greater LA area. 
Printing is essential to every business's success and crucial for marketing and building your brand. There are over 200 products available on their website for convenient online ordering, and custom requests are always welcome through one of Axiom's dedicated account managers. You can upload your design, choose your options, and make payment all from the comfort of your computer or even on the go using your phone 24 hours per day. And if you're not sure how to design your material, no problem. Their team of experienced designers will work with you to create professional and eye-catching designs that effectively market your brand. So if you're looking for a reliable and affordable printing partner, look no further than Axiom Print. Check them out at axiomprint.com and be sure to use the promo code THEFOUNDERHOUR to get 15% off your first order or share the promo code with your dedicated Axiom Print account manager. All right, let's get back into the show. So when did Orange Theory, like when was it born? Like the name, the brand, talk to us about the early days of the actual business. So I created Ellen's in 2008 and Orange Theory was born in 2010. So my partners uh, came over, they took a class, we sat down, uh, they loved it, thought that this was something, said, let's put up a pilot studio in downtown Fort Lauderdale and let's give it a shot. And the three of us went and got some little um, office space and we sat down to <laughs> create a franchise. It's crazy when we sit back and think of the three of us looking at each other, kind of going, okay, so we need to develop training manuals. We need to do this. And uh, I didn't know how to do that. Um, so the goal from day one was to become a franchise yes. business. Yes. Correct. That's, so wh- my, partners wh- wh- were, why? my partners were involved in the massage envy world. So Jerome was uh, owned several Massage Envies. Dave worked in the corporate office of Massage Envy. Then they got together and said, let's try to find something to franchise ourselves. There's a chance on, that they you know, decided to take. And let's see. I mean, we see what is happening. You know your end of it. That's Dave, the, you know, like I said, the manager, CEO. And Jerome, who was like putting a bunch of uh, massage envies up left and right and said, let's just find that thing. And they were just about to sign on a Pilates franchise like a few weeks before they met me. And we sat down and they just felt energetically it was, I was the way to go. Yeah. Boy, I'm glad. And at this point, <laughs> at this point, did you have to go and like get outside capital to build this first studio and then eventually like the franchises or was the idea to like partner up with franchisees, uh, sorry, fran- uh, yeah, franchisees that would um, put up their own capital to, to build these out? Yeah. So we, we put in, the three of us put in money to open up their first pilot studio. And then the whole franchise model, and this is how, you know, it was explained to me early on, is that we find ARs, area reps, and then we sell an area to them. So basically they, you know, finance that area, but then they get a percentage of the royalties. So we don't get the full royalty. They get a percentage. We get a percentage. And then they're responsible for putting up some studios and building out the area. That model is really the brilliant model of expanding uh, because they become partners with us. Mm-hmm. And and so I know I kind of mentioned it earlier about how like now a lot of these concepts are 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 a little bit more like you know common knowledge than it was back then and for that reason I'm sure you've you know you've seen many many competitors pop out whether they're like boot camps or this or that I'm not saying they're direct competitors because um, I know the competition is probably like not doing it at all but um, but like there's so many of these like other concepts and why, what would you say is like the moat that Orange Theory built 
early on that has allowed it to sustain itself and be be a market leader in this space. Yeah, it's definitely heart rate training. I mean, just recently we did our own max heart rate algorithm where our members can come in and it actually adjusts adjusts your max heart rate. I used to test people for max heart rate on a bike for ages one on one. So this brilliance of where we're at, uh, you know, in heart rate training and uh, you know, I don't know if the world knows this, but I'm going to announce it right now. The number one, number one contribution to what your mortality will be is VO2 max, the volume of oxygen your body can take in. That's why when you go to the doctor's office, they do a max test on the treadmill. See, you know, they're checking your breathing. That's, that is the number one judgment or mortality in people. My goodness, we're basically saying to you, you need, you want to be able to take volumes of oxygen in on a regular basis and we probably can give you a few more years on at the end. So I don't know if that's all understood by people. All I know is when they're taking the workout, they feel better. They've got more energy. They feel younger. They're moving better. There's all these things that make them go, uh, I think I'm going to come back. You know, people aren't coming back to Orange Theory because our walls are orange. It's a lovely color, but that's not why they're coming back. They're coming back because it works. They're getting unbelievable results in all ages. You know, another thing that I was, I didn't really like about group training is it really was for the elite fitness. It really wasn't for the overweight, the woman who was a bit deconditioned. She never came into my step class. She looked in through the glass on the outside of the studio. Well, I really wanted to make it so that everyone could come in. So we have a walker category, a jogger category, a runner category. We have all kinds of options they can take. So our oldest member is 95 years old in Colorado. We have all kinds of people taking the workout. It's heart rate based, huge results. So Ellen, my wife has been, I think, going to Orange Theory for, I think, since 2017, so six years or so. And I mean, that's like the only thing that she's... Besides being married to me for two and a half years and dating me for five, that's the most consistent thing I think she's done. Um, so I'm, I'm on the right track, so we just got to keep going. Uh, but she always talks about how, um, in a positive way, that Orange Theory feels a lot like a tech company that just so happens to you know do fitness versus like a cl- group class fitness company. Um, you know, with I think you guys have that whole monitoring system. Yep. Uh, that you guys display um, was that something that was done early on as a part of kind of the core business of what Orange Theory is? Did that develop over time? Talk to us a little bit about that, and I mean, yeah. perhaps if her feeling of this is a tech company type thing is correct. Yeah, absolutely. We we like to call ourselves high touch, high tech. You know, I always say what you cannot measure, you cannot improve. So we have to be measuring things in fitness now. At my studio, we didn't have heart rate monitoring. I did more perceived exertion, you know, and push. You're very uncomfortable. You're challenging, but doable and base, these types of things. When we started the company about a year in, you know, we sat down and the conversation started going around. What if we were able to actually monitor people's heart rate? No one was doing this. Absolutely no one in group fitness. And it was challenging because we had to charge all the monitors overnight. And it was like a nightmare in the beginning. And that's why eventually we went into our own, we have our own uh, heart rate monitors now um, that we, you know, have created and we uh, distribute in the um, studios. But 
what's so great about this is something, someone like your wife who would like to know, gee, I did a one mile jog benchmark yes, uh, yesterday and I shaved off 15 seconds from what I did two months ago. Okay, that means your heart muscle stronger. It's shooting out higher volumes of blood in less time. These are things that you can really sit there and go, I'm measuring this, I'm improving, I'm better. So, you know, our OT Connect on our rowers and treadmills give you all kinds of information. And a lot of people uh, really, you know, want that kind of tech information today. It's finding that fine line of not too much, but just enough. Right. And that's what right. we really want to make sure we do. Yeah. I think that's extremely fascinating that like you guys introduced that tech aspect of it, because I mean, now we've seen like some consumer facing like tech when it comes to like monitoring your heart rate and things like that, like the bands or like the rings or stuff people wear, but you did this kind of in this, like, you know, like this workout environment. And I'm just curious, you know, as as a company who is very focused on tech, like where do you see that all going for Orange Theory? I mean, do you see it eventually branching out of Orange Theory just direct to consumer? Or is it something that like, you're, is there more like innovation to come um, when it comes to the tech aspect of it? Look, at, we're always looking at our members. We just don't want to create things for the fact of let's just create more tech and more fancy stuff. We're looking at it, what do our members really want? What interests them? Kind of way back when I created the workout. That kind of mentality continues 13 years later. So that's what will drive our technology of what's really important to your wife. You know, wanting to know, did you know, am I improving from doing all these intervals, so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's where we're going on that. As far as, you know, branching out, I think our lane of this kind of cheers of fitness, we call it, you know, remember the cheers, the bar where, you know, your wife probably comes in. She probably knows a lot of the members, the staff. She probably developed some nice relationships and friendships. This is also something that we really find so important that's lacking today, right? Because technology takes you away from all of that chit chat and all of that great stuff that we used to have way, way back. So our studio concept is something we are not looking to, you know, go go far far from because it works. Yeah. So you know, it, it's obviously crazy impressive that the last I read it, these numbers might be higher at this point, but uh, that you guys are were at fifteen hundred plus locations in twenty five plus countries, uh, and that's in a decade, less than a decade and a half, which is I, mean, I don't know the math, like thousand locations per. Yeah, I think I saw like oh, no, 20, 2016, you opened a location every day or something right, like crazy. that, which, yeah. is, which is insane. Yeah, which is nuts. I mean, like, so I guess a couple of questions. One, you know, you talk about when you began this, that your purpose and your drive were what got you to do it. Um, the first question is, did you feel like the franchising model was going to take away a bit of that away from you? Look, I think that what was so important to us and what I'm like very proud about our company is we put a lot of effort and money into taking care of our franchisees. They're our partners. We look at them as our partners. They are the ones, they're the boots on the ground, okay? They're out there, uh, you know, with your wife, with the members, the franchisee, uh, he's taking care of his employees, uh, making sure that they're heard and seen and all of that. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's... It, it's something that 
I think that, you know, is so important that we never lose. And I don't think we will. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I guess the second question that I have regarding that was, when did you realize like, wow, like we have made so much money and obviously have made such a great impact. And I could have never imagined that, you know, I could have never imagined that that was going to happen when we first began. Yeah. I, I, you know, personally, I guess I didn't think about that so much because listen, I've been doing this 50 years this year. I've been in the fitness industry five zero and I'm as passionate today as I was when I was putting those straps around those women in the YWCA. So I was so excited to have this huge platform of million mm -hmm. members that I could like affect, you know, regarding fitness and making them better phys physically. I, I was so excited about right. that when I just had a small class that I would do that with. So listen, is that wonderful? It's absolutely wonderful probably more thrilled about all of the franchisees and the area reps who believed in us in the beginning. And they've done incredibly well in this business mm -hmm. because they wanted to be partners with us. So that makes right. me very proud and excited. Yeah. A few years ago, we all know what happened, you know, the pandemic, things, things changed and especially the fitness industry got hit pretty badly. I know my gym was closed for months and I was really upset. Um, but I know, I think it was Catherine, your um, nurse's wife, who said, um, how quickly like Orange Theory was able to kind of adjust to things. And so I'm just kind of curious at the time, um, how did you, what was there like your immediate reaction and how did you, how were you able to really kind of, you know, shift gears and, and maintain operations? Yeah. Pivot fast. Uh, it was, yeah. you know, we went to virtual, we had no idea the virtual world. We, you know, and this where Dave was brilliant and really making that shift so that we could offer for those who, you know, wished it some virtual level of fitness. It was very tough. You have 1500 studios closing the door. You know, what was going on in right. different parts of the world? We have studios in all over the world. It, it was, you know, a devastating time. Uh, all the way around. Uh, I'm so proud of our franchisees who really worked hard to, you know, maintain maybe a key staff or, you know, do what they had to do to bring them back when we were coming back. And they really, uh, you know, proved to, uh, fear that, you know, to go through this storm and it was a mega storm as best as we could. And the fitness industry was hit very, very hard. You're absolutely right. You know, we were looked at as uh, a place that, you know, was not of necessity. Uh, we were trying to, you know, appeal to the government and with other types of fitness, uh, uh, you know, businesses out there that people need this. Yep. They really do. So we're glad we're back. We're definitely doing, you know, so well. And it definitely has to do with the many franchisees, many employees and members like your wife who, uh, you know, yeah. came back and supported their studio and said, let's get going. We're back. I think it goes to show, um, kind of the power also of the, of, of, of franchise business, because I know think, I think the one in our area, um, you know, moved from inside to like outside in like a parking lot or, or whatever they could find, um, you know, and, and continued there. And, and I think having like the, the franchise model is interesting because you have like all these kind of part owners in the business who are like all hands on deck trying to figure out a solution instead of, you know, obviously like a private company that's not franchised, 
um, it's it's like kind of the people at the top, and then everyone's kind of just following you know their orders in in a way. Um, so I I think from that perspective, it's really cool. You're absolutely right. Our franchisees are definitely our partners, and we have some brilliant business individuals out there, men and women, who are running our studios. How has your role changed over the last thirteen years as you know the creator and founder of Orange Theory? Well, I don't go out and train like I did in the early days. Uh, I'm still involved with the template design, uh, which we have a you know brilliant group of exercise fitness specialists who design the workouts that are sent to all the studios. So all the studios are doing the same workout every day. So I'm still involved with that group, just kind of you know sticking my head in and what's going on with that. Um, I'm involved at the corporate office of just you know keeping those employees and, you know, definitely sticking my head in and being a part of any support that's needed on my end. Uh, whenever they need me to go somewhere to do something to support a region, I'm there. Uh, I, I just love it. I love this uh, brand. I love the people in it. I love what it's doing for the world. So uh, it's going to be hard for them to throw me out of this. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, you know, I, I, you obviously have, like, your dad as an example of a coach. I mean, you have your inner coach. You know, when do you, quote, unquote, I don't want to use the word retire, but, like, what's, like, the next step for you as the company continues to grow? And obviously the folks below you, I know we talk about succession planning on with some of these founders that we've had on. You know, how does that look like, you know, from a creative aspect? Because the business is different. I think people can come and run a business. But how do you plan your kind of like the creatives that come after you? Yeah, look, I, I, you know, I, I hope, like I say, to be involved for, you know, as long as, you know, possible. I am now doing a lot of keynote speaking. So that's kind of shifted my, you know, kind of career. And so I'm brought on by companies to do a keynote on, kind of, you know, the direct trajectory of uh, me and Orange Theory. So, and I really enjoy that. And uh, so, yeah, it's definitely, you know, shifted a little. But um, however, you know, where we go, we're right now in rebuild. So, you know, post-COVID. So there's, you know, involvement on my end in that rebuild process. Yeah. Well, Ellen, this has been a fantastic conversation. Uh, you know, just hearing where kind of this all started from and, and the mentality and the mindset that you had, obviously that you got from your father is super inspiring because, you know, there's so many people in positions, whether they're currently working somewhere and they're not happy or they're just trying to figure it out. And, you know, oftentimes we're kind of, I think, wired to think that we need to look like outside and, you know, outside of our immediate kind of thing of like, this is, these are the things that I'm, I'm good at. And it's, it's very doable versus, kind of comparing yourself to others or, or what, what have you. And you did that. Like you looked inward and you, you, you figured out what you had a passion for. And I can feel the passion when you're speaking and, and obviously it keeps you young and energized. And, and I'm sure that you're going to be involved for many, many years to come. And, uh, you know, we can't thank you enough for joining us and sharing your story. Oh, it was a thrill. And, you know, I like to remind people, I partnered with my partners at age 54 so it is never too late to make a shift or say to yourself, you know what? This is what I'm going to go after and do. Never too late. Thank you guys so much. Thank, Thank you, Ellen. Ellen.